questions, comments, critiques, thoughts. We just did 1740s to 1899. Please. Yeah. So, um, to me, that's always a bottom line question. What is Christianity yeah. about? Yeah. And to me, a big key is be right with God, salvation. Yes. And then how should we live this life? Amen. Yeah. It's a great question. I appreciate the question. That's really good. Well, uh, doctrine doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. So the question then is, what is grace? What is faith? Who is Jesus? Which are inescapably doctrinal in their understanding. Now, we can uh, divide those up uh, real finely and, and get to a point where none of us hold exactly the same thing about each of those three things. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. God saves us through what he did uh, through the person and work of his son and his life and death and burial and resurrection and we hope for his soon return. But each of those beg a question that's related to doctrine, which is what do we mean by grace? What do we mean by faith? Which, which Jesus? Um, Marcus Borg, who we'll look at tomorrow morning around 10.30 or 10.45, wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew. And his point is that Christianity is doctrinal. And he, wanted, he wants to repaint the doctrine in such a way that's different than what he was taught growing up. So I would say the issue of doctrine is not necessarily a, a concern of conservatives only. It's a concern of all of us on the spectrum. Um, the other thing I would just I would go back to is the issue of salvation is, is the key. This is the real key. Um, but the evidence that we are saved, our uh, mood, methods, morals, particularly morals. And um, Christianity is unescapably moral. Author of Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so... Uh, folks that have their doctrine squared away and tidy if they're clicking away at internet pornography all night long I wonder grace, faith Jesus changes what I do with this finger and a mouse at 1am in my kitchen so there is a way 
to desire to be free of the word of God. The word of God inspired in scripture and the word of God incarnate in Jesus to throw off that authority. And it can happen any number of ways. It can happen with our message. It can happen with our attitude. It can happen with our our methods, the way we do things, or it can happen with our morals. So the issue of salvation is a huge one. Um, I don't have a lot of the answers regarding Unitarianism and some of the early thinkers in Channing. This just be, uh, be above my pay grade. It's a really good question. We'll talk a little more about it tomorrow uh, with Walter Rauschenbusch. Um, he talked a lot about Jesus. Um, and we will talk more about Jesus tomorrow. Yes, Nick. Right. Okay, so the question is, what is inerrancy? I assumed, you know, something there that I shouldn't assume. What is infallibility? Another question, another I word, what is inspiration? That's another important, older term that would be a real important, explicitly biblical term that we should stir in. What are the differences? Don't think it's all the same thing? Um, They all have to do with a high view of the Bible. Inspiration, that's the most basic one. 2 Timothy 3.16, all, all scripture is breathed out by God. Theopneustos, it's breathed out by God. God exhaled the Bible. It is inspired. It's the very word of God, it's the very breath of God. Now the question becomes then, who is this God that breathed out this book? And then we see things like, it is impossible for God to lie. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, the word inerrancy has become, we could spend the rest of our time on this, has become a major um, lightning rod for discussion because the Bible, it's not a Bible word. Neither is Trinity. It's not a Bible word. Um, and so one of the questions was this. Um, in the day of Charles Briggs and just after, People would say things like, the Bible is faithful and to be followed with reference to spiritual matters, doctrine, morality, practice. But look, when you get to the issues of like geography, I mean, science eventually became psychology, you know, areas like that, we're, we're going to be slower to, to make a statement that the Bible is without error in these domains that so clearly pre-modern people wouldn't have figured out. So some people would like to say the Bible is inspired, not inerrant. Part of the problem with that is how many writers, conservative Christians, attach to that word inerrancy. We say the Bible is inerrant, and then (laughs) get out your list of things we don't mean by that. And some folks who deny the doctrine of inerrancy would just say, look, this idea, I believe in the Bible, I believe it's God's word, I believe it's inspired, but it dies the death of a thousand qualifications. Because you're telling me, Okay, so it's not the English Bible that's inspired. It's not copies that are inspired. It's not, does that make sense? There's a number of, uh, the Bible can be non-precise with reference to its language about numbers or um, uh, a number of different areas. So some of it has to do with how we define inerrancy. A simple definition of inerrancy is simple that it would be that um, um, in all that it affirms, the Bible speaks faithfully speaks truly. It is true in all that it affirms, whether that has to do with 
theological doctrinal matters, life sciences, geography, and, and so on. The traditional doctrine of inerrancy would, would say that. And I think what's been demonstrated, you have to read John Woodbridge, Biblical Authority. He demonstrates that that is, whether we've called it inerrancy or not over 2,000 years, that has been the dominant position of the church. And so as we begin to pick at this, what we need to decide is, what do we mean by inerrancy? Um, if it's just a password, if it's just a, like a shibboleth, you know, to get people in the door, that's not important. Um, but do we mean the Bible is true in all that it affirms? Well, m- most people who talk about an er- or inspiration do mean that. Um, but it does become a lightning rod for controversy. There are plenty of folks, that conservative inspiration folks, who wouldn't line up with inerrancy. And... Um, I just want to be careful not to call that heresy. In fact, I want to be very careful not to call that heresy. I don't think it is. I think it's a lethal error. Oh, infallibility. That's a good question. I'm not even sure if I know. You might know. John might know. What I would say is it will not lead us astray. Okay. And so how would you differ that from inerrancy? Well, inerrancy, I would go further than what you said about inerrancy. Okay. Without error, right. And uh, infallibility means it won't lead us astray. So one is a positive way of framing. Yeah, I suppose so. One's a negative way of saying. Yeah, and I'm, I'm right with you. Um, and the other, what, one of the major qualifications we must give to the doctrine of inerrancy is that we extend that courtesy to the original manuscripts, what are called the autographs. Well, that, that causes all kinds of questions because which originals do we have remaining? Somebody would sincerely ask that question. And you say, none. And then you're in a discussion about copies and, um, and the history of uh, the integrity of the scripture, which actually is quite an encouraging discussion. Um, big, it's a big, big issue. Understood. Please. Yes. And he was criticized for it, and it was, it was, I think he presented that it was uh, not a good thing. I mean, I think it's like what a fundamentalist would say. A fundamentalist would say, we stand by the Bible alone. I thought I was hearing you say something about how Bushnell uh, stood by, said he stood by the Bible alone. Yeah. I absolutely. Yep, I've got it, and I can't wait to get the manuscript in your hands, and that way you can examine it carefully. This is a quote. I'll say the quote. This is what Bushnell said. Um, he encouraged fellow believers to quote, "Stay by the Scripture, and trust ourselves to know constructive reasonings on the subject." That "no" is his emphasis. No constructive reasonings on the subject. Um, and so, on the one hand it seems that Bushnell's conservatism was pretty significant. Go with the Bible. 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. On the other hand, um, he he was very gun-shy about formulating anything that looked like a doctrinal statement or propositional truth based upon the Bible. And um, it is possible to use the Bible 
to use what the Bible says to disprove what the Bible means. Um, Arius did that in the fourth century. He would use doggedly staying with the Bible, and it would infuriate people because he wouldn't use theological language about who Christ was. And it looked like Arius was taking the high road, but he was branded a a heretic, and I think rightfully so, because he wouldn't embrace the divinity of of Christ. And you go, well, okay, but divinity of Christ, is that word in there? Um, My Lord and my God is, the word was God, you know, so you begin to kind of do, we're always doing theology. So Bushnell is one of these guys, um, I would say like each one of us is, is a bundle of contradictions. He had such a high view of the Bible. Boy, the guy could draw lines. But he, he would not, the statement again, trust yourself to no constructive reasonings on the subject. And uh, if we had time, we could look at the way that the apostles themselves talked about doctrine. And we, and we should. They talked about things like guard the good deposit. Uh, keep the form of sound words, Timothy, that I've given to you. Um, so doctrine uh, is inescapable. Uh, we either do it well or we do it badly. Um, so I, no, I'm not, uh, I wouldn't uh, at all uh, be concerned with the first half of that statement. I'd wonder, why don't you construct, trust yourself to any constructive reasonings on the subject? That's what I'd wonder. Trust yourself to constructive reasonings on the subject. You can say things that are true based on what, what Scripture said. So Bushnell's fascinating. People that throw him to the wolves, I don't buy it. He, he really knew how to draw lines. Maybe he didn't draw them all the way we'd want him to, but I like that. Yeah. And they belong the opposite. It sounds like he's the original inerrantist, if, if anything. Ah, uh, Bushnell? Yeah, he had a very high view of the authority of Scripture. There's no question. And he looked at the Unitarians and just said, we, we're, we're, uh, well, he wouldn't be a Unitarian, but he was not a Trinitarian. He was a, he was a halfway house between those two doctrines because he didn't like the Nicene Creed's understanding of the Trinity. But again, that's a doctrinal formulation. Yes. Um, that he didn't hold to be inerrant. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and we, the doctrine of inerrancy, we don't extend that courtesy to our doctrinal formulations. Um, we extend that courtesy to Scripture, the original manuscripts of Scripture. Our doctrines are not inerrant. It almost sounds like Charles Briggs wanted to do that, but he's saying that was the Westminster Confession. Yeah, yeah. And that question just, I think, is a historical error. Uh, to say that the Puritans in the 1650s in England did not affirm something like doctrinal inerrancy, scriptural inerrancy, is... Uh, it, it approaches madness to say that. It's not, I have spent my, my, the last 13 years of my life almost daily with John Owen, who affirmed a radical inerrancy. And uh, he was um, very appreciative of the Westminster Standards. So, got a couple minutes left. Sometimes, Mike. Sometimes people, you know, I'd like to know more about the context of that Bushnell quote because okay. sometimes yeah. people will say something like that when, they, when they're tired of Yeah. Going on for 20 years or 200 or 2,000 years and so on. And so they, they kind of come to that point of saying, oh, 
Painful. Uh, so you're talking about the, the observation that Mike has made is regarding that you just get tired fighting the battles, and the battles are old. They're very old. Um, John, you just finished preaching through Jude, and the Jude comes out of the gate in verse three. Remember what he says? Put you on the spot. I wanted to write you about our common salvation, and why why didn't he go that route? But certain people crept in. Once for all delivered to the saints. The faith once for all delivered. I want to write a Romans, but i got to write this heresy-hunting manual called Jude. This nasty little letter at the back of the New Testament, and it's not a fun letter to read. But you did a good job preaching it. I saw some of that. Work on that. Yeah, um, it's, I mean, you look like an ogre. If, you're, if you are attacking a mood or a method, look out. Now, a, a moral issue and a, and a doctrinal issue might be in a different place, but it is never happy, uh, usually, to, uh, you, uh, usually the mood, like I say, is buoyant and optimistic, and if you attack something that looks buoyant and optimist, optimistic, plus it's moving in the direction of the culture, just, just be prepared for, for what you're going to encounter, so, please, Noah. Okay. Ah, new. Um, yeah. Let's just talk about history. Yeah. <laughs> method. Well, okay, I'll, I'll say one thing about method. Um, pragmatism. Uh, it's prob- you could argue that Jonathan Edwards may be the finest, not only theologian, but philosopher our country ever produced. If he wasn't, it was William James who developed a a, a philosophy called pragmatism. And pragmatism, um, in in kind of street language, as far as I understand it, has to do with how things work. Things work, um, you're good to go. And you can see how that would be on a crash course with things like, so some some principled things don't appear to work (laughs) very well. And sometimes you can even have your, your message and your morals tucked in, and method-wise, you're very pragmatic. You're wildly pragmatic, essentially whatever works. And that can create an environment for the denial of moral and message issues. So I would say one of the problems, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little vague on the, uh, the method issue. I'm not talking about hymns versus choruses. I love both. Um, but I would say that... Uh, Pragmatism. What's work, what works is what's right. Uh, that, um, that's one example of method liberalism. Yeah, please, maybe one more.
smart. Yes. You're, you're addressing the question to a bad guy. That would be the first thing. I, you're addressing the question to a bad guy. I'm the worst sinner I've ever met in my life. And I need God's grace every nanosecond of the day. Um, I believe that I am primarily a liability to Mount Evangelical Free Church as opposed to an asset. And that I live my life by God's grace every day. And that Jesus' death on the cross was horrific because my sin is a massive affront to God's holiness and goodness and justice and uh, graciousness toward me. So I wouldn't be in a hurry to point the finger anywhere. Um, the tone of this seminar is, um, I would have dinner with any of these guys. And uh, I thank God I'm not their judge, and uh, we'll let the Lord figure out you know, where people go for all eternity. I, I don't claim to know that. Um, uh, regarding the moral versus message question, this is interesting because no, I don't think, well, Beecher had some serious moral issues. I do too. Um, I don't get the sense that that was the case with Channing, certainly not with Chauncey. I think he was a holy man who believed in universalism. Um, Harry Emerson Fosdick, a classic heretic and probably one of the most moral men in the 1920s and 30s in this country. I don't find that the problems, the crying need of Protestant liberalism today is on the issue of message as much as morality. Um, Fosdick would drop dead again if he knew what was happening in his church today morally. And he would have been shocked that you would suggest his doctrine would lead the church there. Um, so I would just say that uh, liberalism is something we all deal with, we all struggle with. Um, and as to the issue of wisdom, boy, these guys were smart. They were all kinds of brilliant. Um, and I preached today at the funeral of a 92-year-old man. Uh, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Um, I believe the Bible makes us wise, 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 wise. And there are people um, with lots of letters after their names um, that make foolish mistakes, um, just as there are simple people um, that hold to the old truths and are very wise. So no, I wouldn't seek to cast a, a pall on these guys, and I'm glad I'm not their judge. Um, I basically, in fact, if you're not coming tomorrow, how do you react to all this? Understand them. Second, appreciate them. Third, empathize with them. 
Fourth, confess your sin to them. Fifth, correct them. And in that order. Um, which is terribly unsatisfying for those who were looking for a heresy hunt this weekend. You're not going to get probably that kind of ammunition. Um, I deeply love the people I'm correcting um, and uh, want to be helped. So I'm going to pray for us and we'll dismiss for the night. Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you for these friends that have come. And I pray, Father, that you would take this knowledge and press it into the service of love. We are now all on the hook for what we've learned. I pray that we would not walk away here with more things crammed in our brains and experience a kind of spiritual constipation, but that we would find ways to love people across the spectrum. All of us, to one degree or another, have a great temptation, a desire to be free from the word of God Morals, mood, methods, message. So help us to identify and engage in a way that would honor Jesus, our great Savior. In his name we pray, amen.